0: our series. Um, I had called it, and many of you may have seen on your your CD cases, a Protestant's critique of Rome. And in preparation for this lesson especially, the series has been changed to a a Protestant's protest against Rome. So it's no longer a critique, it is a protest. Amen? So far, we have learned that Rome denies the doctrine of sola scriptura. Rome denies that Scripture and Scripture alone is the sole infallible source of authority for faith. Rome believes that she and she alone has the authority to determine what is and what is not Scripture. Rome believes that she and she alone has the authority to interpret what Scripture means and what Scripture does not mean. And Rome also believes that she has the right to determine what is history or what is tradition and what is not tradition. We also learn that Rome denies the biblical truth of sola fide and sola gratia, or faith alone and grace alone. Rome denies that Christ in his finished perfect work on the cross is and was sufficient enough for our salvation and for our justification. Rome believes and teaches that the work of Christ is necessary, but the work of Christ is not sufficient for salvation. Rome teaches that one could be justified, granted they perform the sacraments. The sacraments being that of baptism, penances, taking or partaking of the Eucharistic sacrifice, doing good works, And loving each other. Then and only then, when one performs all of these sacraments, is one on the path to justification. However, that path is one of uncertainty because at any time an individual could lose their justification. And if they commit a mortal sin, they must start all over again. So Rome has no peace in their gospel because Rome does not teach or preach a gospel of peace. Tonight, I would like to present to you my third protest against Rome, and that is the false teaching of the seat of the Pope. The false teaching of the seat of the Pope. Are you ready? Okay, let's try it again. Are you ready? All right, good. Good. The word Pope, you have it here, comes from the Latin word Papa. In the Greek, the word is Papis, which is a child's word for father. In the first six centuries after the ascension of Christ, there was no Pope in Rome and no one ever knew of what is called a Pope. Six hundred years after the ascension of Christ, no one knew what a Pope was and a Pope was never established in Rome there were people who claimed to be the leader of the church and they would call themselves the bishop of such and such a place or they would call themselves the pope. There was at one time three different popes claiming to be the pope in three separate places. It was not until the 6th century when a man by the name of Henry the Wise was declared the official pope of Rome. This position of pope... It was bought, it was sold for political power. There was no succession from Peter. And any attempt to say that there was a succession from Peter is simply drawing names from a hat and saying, well, it could be this person and it could have been that person in order to solidify the so-called succession of Peter. The Pope is called the Holy Father And people who are devout to this man bow before him and kiss his hand or anything that they can get to. Jesus said that we are to call no one our father in the sense that they are the source of spiritual truth. And yet we have many Roman Catholics who will refer to this man as the Holy Father. The Roman Catholic Church claims that Peter was placed in a position of primacy by our Lord Jesus Christ. And this position is one of honor, jurisdiction, and rulership. The same primacy, honor, jurisdiction, and rulership that belongs to, listen, to Christ. Hence, Rome teaches that the, word, that the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. That Latin word, vicar, it is vicarius Christi, or the seat of Christ, The main idea behind the idea of the vicar of Christ is this. The Pope sits in the seat of Christ as his substitute after his ascension. You've got to get this. The Pope is sitting in the seat of Christ as his substitute. He is taking the jurisdiction, the honor, and the primacy that is due to Christ and it has been placed upon himself. If that does not make you shiver, then towards the end of this lesson, I pray that you will. Well, Rome believes that they have the exact substitute for Christ seated on the seat of Rome, dressed in a mitry or a headdress that is adorned with gold, gems and precious, precious stones his garb that he wears is one that costs tens of thousands of dollars. This elaborate headdress that he wears on his head has become it, it has as it progressed increasingly, increasingly in size since it was first worn. If you ever look it up on online, you'll see how it has progressively grown in size. What is more, Rome believes that Christ gave Peter the right to become his successor and to sit in his seat when Christ was gone. Rome teaches that the Pope and his successors have been given the right by Christ to take that place of honor, jurisdiction, and rulership over the whole church. So therefore, the person sitting on that seat of Christ is the pastor of all Christians. As Christ is the head of the church, Rome sitting in that seat believes that the Pope is the head of the church. According to the dogmatic teachings of Rome, evidence for this seat of primacy given to Peter is found in Matthew 16 and John 21. We're going to go through those extensively in just a few moments. Rome teaches that Peter is the rock of Matthew 16. And Christ, in giving this seat of primacy to Peter, Christ also intends for this seat of Peter to be passed on to other successors. Rome teaches that in this passage, Christ is instituting the office of the Pope for the Christian church. Rome also teaches that when Christ spoke to Peter and said, feed my sheep, he was setting Peter apart as the Pope of all the Christians in a way that was different from all the other apostles. Rome teaches that Peter was the first bishop of Rome. And because of this, Peter passes on this seat to succeeding bishops of Rome. Rome teaches that this has always been true. Listen to me. And anyone who expresses a different perspective or holds a perverse opinion, the anathema of God is placed upon you, meaning the damnation of God is given to you. If you are teaching what I'm teaching tonight. We will discuss those two passages in just a few moments. And in also in, in In our introduction, Rome teaches that the Pope, when speaking (coughs) ex cathedra, meaning when, when the Pope is speaking from that chair or from that seat that was given him by Christ, he speaks infallibly. That whatever comes out of his mouth from that seat is without error, it is perfect, and it has no possibility of being wrong. This is the Pope that the people who are Catholics in your family are following. The substitute of Christ. The Vatican Council, session 2 or session 5, 4. It says this, we teach and define that it that is a dogma divinely revealed that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is. When in discharge of the office of pastor and doctor of Christians by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church, by the divine assistance, assistance promised to him in blessed Peter is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine redeemer willed. That his church should be endowed in defining doctrine regarding faith or morals and that therefore such definitions of the Roman pontiff are themselves and not are themselves and not from the consent of the church. Irreformable, meaning this. It's perfect and it can't be changed. Whatever he says goes and it cannot be changed because it's perfect and it will never be reformed. So. So. With the time that we have today, the next 25 minutes, I'd like to share with you four points. And actually four questions that we're going to answer. Was Peter ever in Rome and seen as the Pope of all the Christians? Is Jesus without question speaking to Peter in Matthew chapter 16? And in doing so, identifying him as the rock upon which the church is built. Did Jesus establish Peter as the very first pope and head of the Christian church in John chapter 21? And did Jesus intend to create an office, the office of pope, with successors and is the pope infallible when speaking ex cathedra? A lot to deal with tonight. I actually in my own notes have 23 pages of notes. You have 14 on the here. So let's get through it. We acknowledge this. Peter, Peter's name is the most prominent when it comes to the Gospels. He's the leading disciple, and his name appears more often in first when it comes to the list of apostles. This is possibly because Peter was the oldest or possibly because some of the accounts show that Peter was chosen first. Be that as it may, any time that Peter speaks, many times he's the first one to speak up. Sometimes when Peter speaks, he speaks with a blessing. Other times when Peter speaks, he speaks with a rebuke, or he speaks and he is rebuked. For example, immediately after, after receiving the revelation from the Father concerning the identity of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 16, Peter demonstrates his, his fallibility by rebuking Jesus when Jesus reveals to them that he is going to be crucified and die. Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, never, I will never let this happen. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. The same thing happens on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. When Peter opens up his mouth again, and he wants to build a house on the mountain so that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and the disciples could all just live there, having heaven on earth. Peter, once again, has no idea what he's talking about, and Jesus is rebuking him again. Peter is prominent in the gospel, in the gospel, but being prominent and being supreme are two completely different things. The gospels deny that any of the apostles held a position of primacy. None of them was the greatest. The New Testament shows that Peter did not actually take any position of primacy. Let's go to Luke chapter 22. I know that you guys are all have places somewhere else. I just want to show you this real quick. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. See, I got it when you got it. <laughs> If you're looking in your scriptures, hey, uh, can you turn the air up a little bit? Getting cold and people are trying to snuggle together and get go to sleep. Verse 24, if you'll look at the heading above 24, there's a question there. Who is the greatest? A dispute arose amongst them as to which was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves for who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves you. Are those who have stayed with me in my trials? And I assign to you, as Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat, drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There is a dispute amongst them as to who's going to be the greatest. If Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 had already declared Peter to be the new pope and his successor, this argument would have never happened apparently an argument arose and nobody got the memo that Peter was to be the leader. This argument would have never happened if they all knew and it was all known that Peter was going to succeed Christ and be the vicar of Christ on earth. Oh, I can't wait to get there because you're looking at me like, and? So, okay. Nowhere in the epistles does Paul, John, John, James or Jude ever, none of these apostles ever refer to Peter as the leader. None of them ever even refer to Peter as the pope or the new leader of the church. They never give any implication that there is even anything known as a papacy. First Peter chapter five, verse number one. This is what Peter says about himself. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as what? As your fellow elder. And witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. This is what he's saying. Peter does not speak as a pope, but a fellow elder. He does not speak as the chief pastor, but a fellow pastor. No reference to Rome. No reference to the papacy or any other claim by Rome. We see the same thing in the second letter that is written by Peter. The same humility. The same, I'm on the same even playing field with you all. We would expect Peter at the end of his, of his life, writing at the end of his life, to direct Christians to follow his successor in the office of Pope. And he would also be naming who that successor would be. But it's not there. Why? Because it does not exist. We have no evidence that Peter ever views himself as the pope or even the bishop of Rome. And I'll get to that in a minute. Rome teaches that Peter went to Rome and that he established the first church of Rome there. You ever heard of St. Peter's Basilica? It is said that Peter is buried under that church. But here's one problem. We have no evidence that Peter even went to Rome. We have no evidence that Peter even started a church in Rome. We have no evidence that Peter is even buried under that church. It is all political and it is all propaganda. When Paul wrote, listen, when Paul wrote the book of Romans in 55 to 57, he wrote to encourage the new believers there in Rome. Listen, who had no pastor there to explain to them what they now believed in this is interesting and from this book of Rome uh, this book of the Romans we have this masterpiece of what doctrine is and what the gospel is and these people apparently had never heard about it and Paul was being a pastor to them in a long distance way now why would he need to be a long distance pastor if Peter was already there as the pastor because Peter wasn't there Here's another thing. Peter is not in Rome when Paul writes. He never mentions Peter anywhere in the book of Romans. Anywhere. As a matter of fact, if you look at the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16, Paul gives a greeting to a number of people. He goes on and on and on. And you would think out of all the people that he mentions, he would have not forgotten Peter who was one of the most prominent of the disciples. But Peter's not in that list. Why? Because Peter's not in Rome. And he never went to Rome. Rome was 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem. That's exactly where where Peter was crucified. In Jerusalem. It would be a big deal for Paul to leave Peter out of that list of hellos. It would be like John writing a, church, writing a letter to this church and not saying, hey, say hello to Pastor Antonio. That would be a huge diss. If he said all your names and not mine. <laughs> Paul also was writing to Timothy while he was in prison in Rome. And he never mentions Peter. He says, as a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 16, no one came to support me. I'm in Rome. I'm in prison. I'm going to die. No one has come to visit me. If Peter was the pastor there, don't you think he would have came to at least visit Paul? But there is nothing. The book of Acts, it gives us the clearest insight into the function of the early church. If anywhere was going to give us evidence of the fact that Peter was the the pope of the church, it would be right there in the book of Acts. But it's not there. As a matter of fact, we see just the opposite. Acts chapter 8, Peter and John are sent to investigate a matter. Acts chapter 11, Peter is called to give an account for his actions when he goes to the house of a Gentile, Cornelius. Acts chapter 15, Peter, or the apostles and elders come together to settle a matter. Not the Pope Peter and then the apostles and then the elders. Instead, it's the apostles and the elders. That's a big deal. Peter's not singled out. Instead, they are all one. Peter is considered to be an apostle, no different from all the rest. James is actually the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So why don't we have a succession of James? Now, let's break down these two passages together. I'm going to go in reverse. Let's go to John chapter 21. Cyril event, Alexandria who lived between 370 and 444, demonstrates that the earliest and most logical understanding of this passage, John chapter 21, is held by the Protestants and not Roman Catholics. It says this. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Right there. If anyone asks, what cause... Or, let me see what mine says. If anyone asks, for what cause... He asked Simon only through, only though the other disciples were present and what he means by feed my lambs and the like. We answer this, that St. Peter with the other disciples had already been chosen to the apostleship. But because meanwhile, Peter had fallen. For under great fear, he had thrice denied the Lord. He now heals him that was sick and exacts a threefold confession in place of his triple denial, contrasting the former with the latter, and compensating the fault with the correction. It is this. In John chapter 21, let's let's turn there. John chapter 21, let me turn there. Verse 15, it says this. When they had finished breakfast, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Why was this done three times? The reason why is this. Jesus is restoring Peter for the three times that he denied Jesus. Jesus is not emphasizing you are now the pastor of our church and you take my place. Instead, he is forgiving Peter for the three times that Peter denied him. The threefold question of Peter, followed by a command to feed the sheep, is an act of what? Restoration. He's restoring Peter. Not giving Peter a seat of primacy, but forgiving Peter of the three times that he denied him before man. Nothing in this passage suggests anything to the contrary. Nothing in this passage indicates that only Peter is to be the shepherd of the flock. Only Peter is to sit in the seat of Christ, and if it were that case, then people like Paul, Timothy, James, Titus, and all the others who were leading the churches, they didn't get the memo that Peter was the leader. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, be on your guard for yourself and for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul did not say since Peter's the chief shepherd, the vicar of Christ, you are to act as under shepherds to the shepherd Peter. No, instead he says you are all shepherds. You are all leaders. You are all to take care of the flock. This passage in no way sets Peter apart as the prime head of the church. Matthew chapter 16. You still don't get it, and you still don't care. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. (coughs) Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do they say, or what do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others or others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I love that part. I love how people try to interpret that last part, too. (laughs) This is essentially where the foundation for Rome's idea of the papacy rests. Make sure. At Vatican one, Rome claims that their interpretation of this passage is infallible. In this passage, Jesus leads his disciples to a confession of faith in him. The father from heaven reveals the true nature of the son, Jesus Christ. But these verses are being used to support the concept that is seen nowhere else in scripture. And that is The false doctrine of the seat of the Pope. We are told to believe that Peter is not only made the foundation, Peter made the foundation of the church itself. But that foundation creates what is now called the office of the Pope, which involves successors who sit on that seat of Rome, 1500 miles away. The central theme of this passage is this. The point of this passage in in Matthew chapter 16 is this. Thank you. Messiahship of Christ. The point is not the Pope of Rome. Thank you, sir. The point is the Messiahship of Christ and no other point. You got to get this because if you don't, you're going to see a lot of different themes in this passage. And the main point is this. Christ is the Messiah. That's the point. That's the point. Jesus asks his disciples a question. What are the opinions of the multitudes and their viewpoints? Are they all? And then he directs those viewpoints toward himself and says, what do you think about me? When Peter stands up and confesses that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, he's confessing the faith of not just himself, but of all the disciples. He's saying we all believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He often spoke for all of them. And he did so in this case. Jesus then pronounces a blessing on Peter because of this. Only God can reveal to you the true nature of his son. It is only by God. God chose to reveal himself or his son to you. God revealed to Peter the true identity of Jesus. Jesus points out that in order for the son to be revealed... It takes the enlightening of the Father. This is the same theme that we see in John chapter six, where no man can come to the Son unless they are drawn by the Father. So when Jesus says, "I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome overcome it." The focus doesn't change. He's still talking about himself being the Son of the Living God, the Messiah. The subject of this passage is the identity of Christ. It does not change to the identity of Peter. That's big. Christ is the focus, not Peter. Christ is the, the, the main theme of this passage, not Peter. He's still talking about himself. So what's the rock? He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. The rock is this. The rock is the confession that Peter made. And that is made by all who belong to the church of Jesus Christ. What's that confession? That you, Jesus Christ, are the son of the living God. And Jesus said upon this rock. What rock is that? Upon what Peter's confession just was that he is the son of the living God. The church is built. Not upon Peter, but upon the confession of Peter and the disciples that Jesus is who he says he is. He doesn't say upon you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. It's not Petras. It's Peter. And the church is built on the Petra. That's the solid confession of faith on which Christ builds his church. Well, what about the keys and the binding and the loosing? Think about this. Jesus says, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. And if he's speaking to Peter, When do we see that key, those keys ever being given to Peter in scripture ever? Is there ever a moment in scripture where Jesus finally says, "Okay, Peter, you earned it. Here's the keys. It never happens. Why? Because he's not speaking to Peter. What about this binding and loosing? What exactly does that mean? Binding and loosing are this. It it is having the biblical authority to declare someone saved or not saved Based upon the rock or the confession of faith. That's huge because we've heard the binding and loosing is whatever you say it is. And whatever you don't say it is, you have the power. What he's talking about is salvation. Because in context, he's saying the rock that the church is built upon is the confession of faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he gives you and me. As believers in the church or in Christ and as a part of the church, the authority to look at someone and say, based upon your confession and based upon your repentance and based upon your life, you are saved. And to also look at someone and say, based upon your lack of confession and your lack of repentance and your lack of turning to Christ, you are not saved. We have this idea that it's not my call. Christ gives us the authority to make it our call. Now, are we the judges of that? Absolutely not. But we definitely can make the call. How many people have we led to Christ? Many. We have the authority to declare, based upon the authority of heaven, that a person is part of the kingdom or a person is not a part of the kingdom. Based on scripture. Pope John Paul II, many of you love him. He says, no one ever knows if someone's saved Or if someone's not saved, we can never be sure. Pope John Paul II worshipped Mary. I could go on and on and on about him, and I won't. But what about this issue of papal infallibility? A man by the name of Charles Hodge says there's something simple and grand in this theory, papal infallibility. It is wonderfully adapted to the taste of and wants of men. It relieves them of personal responsibility. Everything is decided for them. Their salvation is secured by merely submitting to be saved by an infallible sin, pardoning and grace and pardoned church. We know that when Christ was on the earth, men did not receive or obey him. We know that when the, the apostles were still living and their authority was still confirmed by signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, the church was distracted by heresies and schisms. If any in their sluggishness are deposed disposed to think that a perpetual body of infallible teachers would be a blessing all must admit that the assumption of infallibility by the ignorant the erring and the wicked must be an evil and great and inconceivably great the romish theory if it's true it might be a blessing but if it's false it is an awful curse and what he's saying is this the idea that God has a spokesman on earth on which the tough questions can be addressed and answered teachings that are straight from God, a life that reflects holiness and attracts many faithful followers to Rome. That's why they go there and they kiss his hand and thousands upon thousands they meet whenever there's a new coronation of a pope because they think a new representative of Christ, Christ on earth. Can you imagine being bound to this this fallible man and everything he says is supposed to be perfect and you have no right to question it? Wow. Now, if it is perfect, then maybe that's a blessing. But what has come out of Rome is pure idolatry. And it's been spoken by that so-called infallible teacher, the Pope. Rome says that he's the vicar of Christ, the substitute of Christ, sits in the place of Christ, the heavenly leader of Christ right here on earth. This idea, it may seem to provide security and assurance, but when one considers in light of the biblical teaching. One is struck by the fact that the vicar of Christ on earth, according to the Lord himself in John 14 and John 16 It's not the Pope. The Vicar of Christ on earth is the Holy Spirit. And he has been replaced by the Roman church. The official declaration of papal infallibility came out by the first Vatican council that ended in 1870. In 1870, all of a sudden, they just decided the Pope is perfect. Everything he says is perfect. The idea that the church as a whole being perfect is much older. But check this out. Listen. Only after the idea of, being, of the pope being a universal head of the church was there a, an establishment to make whatever he says perfect. So check out this. You've got Rome teaching the church is perfect. Once that's been established and forced upon people, and if, it, if you don't believe it, you die. Look at the mid, medieval church of Rome. They killed thousands of people. Because they didn't believe in these things. Many of them were the reformers that we fall in line with. Church is perfect. And let's follow this. The Pope is the head of the church. And if you don't believe it, you'll die. So once everybody's established that and everybody's afraid of that, then they say, and everything that he says is perfect. And if you don't believe that, you die. Can you imagine? The fear that ran rampant in the hearts of people like you and me. We would have been martyred. During these times, because we would have hoped we would have went against this. The concept of papal infallibility is limited to the church and to the pope when he speaks anything concerning faith and morality. If the biblical evidence for the papacy is non-existent, we should not be overly surprised that the concept of papal infallibility is also nowhere to be found in Scripture. The only one who speaks infallibly it's right here. God in his word. What is more, the concept, it stands opposed to the facts of history. And I don't have time to go through it, but there have been many popes, many popes who, when speaking ex cathedra, spoke in error so many times. Papal infallibility is the capstone of the entire denial of sola scriptura. Rome tells us that we can find an infallible guide in the person of the Pope, that one can speak for the for the church without question on matters concerning faith and morals. But it is impossible not to point out that this simple or that this doctrine, it finds its roots in replacing the Holy Spirit with a man. Who is to take the seat of Christ when he ascends to heaven? The Holy Spirit, who is to teach Christians and lead them into the truth, the Holy Spirit, who is to guide Christians and enlighten their minds to the truths of God, the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to say that the churches, they need the Holy Spirit to help them. No, the role of the Holy Spirit is to be the vicar of Christ on earth. The truth is that the Holy Spirit's role has been taken over. By the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church and the heretical seat of the Pope, which looks a lot like the seat of the Antichrist. The reformers have always known this, and they stood strong in the opposition to these lies taught by Rome, and they faced death because of their stance. I'm going to close with some quotes that may shock you. Martin Luther. The reign of Antichrist predicted and described in the Bible was none other than the papacy. And all the people said, amen. A holy terror seized their souls. It was Antichrist whom they beheld beheld on the pontifical throne. Martin Luther again. We here are of the conviction that the papacy is the true and real seat of Antichrist. I owe the Pope no Other obedience than that I owe to Antichrist. Martin Luther again. I am persuaded that if at this time, St. Peter, I love this. If St. Peter in person, the one who they say is the successor, the main pope, if he came and preached all the articles of Holy Scripture and he denied the pope's authority, power and primacy. And say that the pope is not the head of Christendom, they would hang Peter. He goes on later to say, even if Christ himself came and preached, the pope is not the head of the church. They would crucify him again. John Calvin says some persons think us too severe when we call the Roman pontiff antichrist. But those who are of this opinion do not consider that they bring the same charge against Paul himself, after whom we speak and whose language we adopt. I shall show I shall briefly show that Paul's words in Second Thessalonians are not capable of any other interpretation than that which applies to the papacy. What he's speaking about in Second Thessalonians is the is the Antichrist. And he says, I can prove to you that's the pope. John Knox, the papacy is the very Antichrist, the Pope being the son of perdition whom Paul speaks about. Thomas Kramer, another uh, great martyr and reformer. Rome is the seat of Antichrist. And this is all progressively going on as the years go on. Every one of them is saying this. And the Pope is the Antichrist himself. I can prove by many scriptures. Our very own confession of faith. Westminster Confession of Faith says this. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But that is but is that of Antichrist? The pope is that of Antichrist. That's what he's saying. That's what they're saying. The man of perdition that exalts himself and the church against the Christ and all that is called God. He is the final Antichrist. He's not the final Antichrist, but he is the embodiment of the Antichrist. There are many other passages or other quotes, but I'd like to end with just a few, one by Charles Spurgeon, who is very bold. It is the bound and duty of every Christian to pray against the Antichrist and as to what Antichrist is no sane ought, no sane ought to raise the question if it not be or if it be not the popery in the Church of Rome. There is nothing in the world that can be called by that name. Popery, he says, is contrary to Christ's gospel, and it is the Antichrist. He goes on later to say, I would rather be called a devil than to be called a pope. John MacArthur says the papacy is the biggest hoax ever hoaxed upon the world. (laughs) Rome believes that the pope is perfect because he's chosen by perfect men. Rome believes that the pope is the king of the world, that he can that that he can impose himself on any king. Rome believes that the pope is the supreme judge of civil laws and is incapable of being subjected to those civil laws, that he is above all law and above all kings. Listen to this. Whenever a bishop is consecrated, there is an oath of allegiance to the pope. And this is what it says with all my power. I will persecute and make war on all heretics and schismatics, that's spelled wrong, who rebel against our Lord, the Pope, and all his successors. So help me, God, and these holy gospels of God. This is still said today by every cardinal and bishop who makes a profession of faith. The priest from St. Philip's to St. Jude When they take their oath, they take their oath as being a substitute of Christ in the church to this day. Roman Catholic Church is a band of idolaters, saint worship. Mary worship, relic worship, sacrament worship, church worship, Pope worship. It is the heart of idolatry. Masked as Christianity. This may shock you in closing, but the Antichrist is to be a dominating world leader. He's not to be subject to any other leaders. He's to have international power. He will be a false Christ. He will set himself up as God. All will revere him and he will seek to create peace and he will succeed in doing so, etc., etc., etc. It's not a bad guess to guess that the seat of Rome will be harboring the seat of the Antichrist. Colossians 118 says this. we're just in time to close here. Colossians 118. He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ and Christ alone. It has been the Roman Catholic Church led by the pope who has been the biggest opponent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, just ask people like William Tyndale, martyred for his faith and martyred for standing against the beast in Rome. If you don't believe me, ask John Wycliffe, who was martyred for translating the word of God and for preaching sola scriptura. If you don't believe me, ask John Huss, who followed John Wycliffe and who was also martyred and killed for preaching sola scriptura and that scripture alone has the sole infallible source of authority. If you don't believe me, ask his partner Jerome, who was also killed for preaching the same gospel that we're preaching today. If you don't believe me, ask those who were killed by Bloody Mary, thousands of them, killed by Bloody Mary during the medieval church where there were 800 who fled to Geneva because they were being persecuted and pursued by Rome. For doing what? For preaching what I'm preaching right now. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ has had an opponent, and she disguises herself as an angel of light, and she is nothing but a wolf, and she's sheep's clothing, and her name is Rome. Let's pray.